Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled built for business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel vPro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel vPro. Built for what IT heroes do. Built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I won't tell you where I am. It doesn't matter where I am. I do want to tell you about today's show, which is cool. It's not quite a twofer. It's maybe a one and a halfer. It was Steve Martosi, a serial entrepreneur, which means he started two companies, GroupMe. That was a messaging company sold for a bunch of money. And now he's doing Splice, which is a really interesting digital music company um, that I've been sort of paying attention to for years. It's a good conversation where we get to talk about starting companies, starting second companies, the state of the digital music business, how you can make money from it. Um, I referenced Lil Nas X multiple times, so that's all good. And also a conversation with my pal, Jason Del Rey, the world's best commerce reporter. He also happens to work with me. Um, he has a very cool podcast series coming out. It's all about Amazon. We talk about that and Instagram and a couple other media slash commerce questions that I had that Jason answered. That's coming up at the end of this. So let's get to those interviews right now. In the studio, already appreciative of our beautiful office, Steve Martosi, CEO, co-founder of Splice. Welcome, Steve. How you doing? I'm really proud I pronounced your name correctly. You did. Good work. I was thinking about it all morning, like, it's got to be Martucci. I wouldn't have corrected you if you said that. This could go out to everyone, and I would not have corrected you. This is the highlight of the episode, usually, is when I pronounce someone's name and get it right or wrong. Well, you win. Okay. Hooray. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Steve. Thanks for having me. Tell us what Splice is. I think I know what it is. We've talked about it at length. I've written about it. You but have just written about For it. a regular human being, what is yeah. Splice? You know, we like to call Splice the creative hub for the modern musician. <clears throat> Uh, but the thing that people are most excited about what we do is we, we make it easy for musicians to get access to the sounds and tools they need, particularly a library of three million samples and loops that you can use in your tracks royalty-free. I'm a musician. I'm a producer. Yeah. I'm making music. Mm-hmm. I need a sound. Mm-hmm. I get a sound from you guys. It's really the best way to get it. So the library is for any kind of mode you're in, like if you just want to browse for inspiration, you need that or you need that specific flute in the key of B, we've got it for you. So I, when I wrote about you a couple years ago, we used an example where a producer had pulled out like a single like drum clap, basically, yeah. for a hit Demi Lovato song. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there are many other popular songs that we can point to that have been built with Splice. Well, my favorite, I just saw a tweet an hour ago before I got here, and someone's vocal sample made it on a Jonas Brothers track in the new uh, new album. So... That's cool. I don't know the exact track yet, but I saw breaking news an hour ago. Breaking news? <laughs> if you have a older sort of 
thought about the way people make music, right? Yeah. Guy with a guitar walks into the studio and strums it. This will get your. It'll, it's a little difficult to get your head around. Um, if you spend any time thinking about how popular music is made today, this mm -hmm. will make more sense. Uh, there's a great book called uh, what is it called? It's jumped by John Seabrook. Did I write the name down? Yeah, Song Machine. There we go. That's cool. my titles. Uh, New Yorker writer uh, talks about sort of how modern pop music is assembled these days, mm -hmm. literally by teams of people. Yeah. Um, and this, is, crazy, this yeah. fits into that. Very much so. It's really like the rise of the producer and the laptop or, or computer becoming the primary instrument. Yeah, the ability to collaborate with so many people, some of these kind of hit factories and just great writing camps and, and teams have figured out how to really make it a, a, an incredibly efficient process. So you've got someone in, and their job is just to write the hook, and someone in yeah. comes and writes the lyrics, and someone else comes to Go browse a bunch of sounds. Go find, yeah. go find sounds that yeah. I might use to assemble this, and that's where they might use something like Splice. Yeah, and like, you know, we've heard some pretty crazy stories about different camps that have these, like, levels of people who are writers. Some are just finding sounds, putting them together. They get passed to the next person. They get passed all the way up. And it's then literally a, into a, a factory or they'll park out in someone's house for a week or you, a weekend. You know, what I love about it, though, is just like the amount of creativity that's flowing, right? Like everybody is doing their component and it's just ena enabling more people to work on something. So because my software background, there's so much of our this splice is coming from the amazing collaboration tools that we have in software. So to see more people being able to work on a track, uh, I get excited by it. Yeah, the, I mean, again, the, the sort of older idea of music is someone goes off into the woods and, and writes mm -hmm. a song, and maybe if it's a band, the, mm -hmm. the, the guys in the band all get together and bash stuff around. Um, and this, as you're saying, is much more collaborative. I think some people will find that disappointing, that there's a team of people producing music. You like the idea. Well, I, I just think it's, it's not or. Yeah. Right. So, like, I was with, I saw Billie Eilish on Tuesday, or Monday or Tuesday, and, uh, you know, her and her brother write all this stuff. And it's just the two of them, and mm -hmm. they, it's mostly all original creations, and that's just that kind of, like, magical, just duo, family duo making music. And although, so, although I assume, though, when there's a Billie Eilish and she says, me and my brother wrote this song, there's still a team of people sort of producing it and, and adding some of this stuff. You know, from the conversation I had, it was pretty impressively... Yeah in-house, that's the way they work. And, like, so uh, I don't know, like, the final, whether they're sending it out to, like, mastering engineers and stuff like that, but it sounds like from the conversations I was having, that's, like, a, a core in-house writing team right there. I was thinking of you uh, a few weeks ago. The New York Times did a great uh, video. It's a video series about how they make songs. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one was about Old Town Road. Oh, wow. Uh, Lil Nas yeah, X, yeah. who's like a 20-year-old yeah. working in, his, I think, his mom's basement in like Atlanta or something. And then he's using a sample that he bought from some guy in the Netherlands for like 18 bucks. Yep. And that is a sample of a Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nail song. Uh, the guy, the guy in Amsterdam has never heard of Trent Reznor. It's amazing. Um, I'm, I don't think Lil Nas X knew he was buying a Trent Reznor sample. Um, now you guys are not involved in that, but I, I would, I would suggest that anyone who's remotely interested in this go find that video. It's great. It's like a six-minute explanation of how a song is built, um, and it's a hit song. It's a kind of a novelty song, but you can sort of see how a lot of how this will work for a lot of musicians now. I need this sound. I need this thing. Can you go get it for me? Yeah, I'm actually. I was just looking at my blog, our Splice blog here. It's the whole behind the scenes of that conversation. Now, I think we talk with the producer on the track. Um, yeah, there and, you go. Yeah, and it's uh, young Keo. Yeah, it's the ability for these people in their bedroom to just raw create and collaborate with the world. And what's cool for us is like, 
we try to expose as much of the story behind the samples because like a lot of our Splice originals, we just did a Travis Barker pack this week that does a whole video about his creative process and how he does all these drum loops for us. Um, we try to tell the story as much as possible because you could pull something from Splice and you don't know you're pulling something from someone famous. So, uh, but with, you know, with the, this being designed for that, at yeah. least here. So this is your, how many years into this now? You know, I, the company is is over five. Uh, Splice Sounds is uh, over th- just over three. But this company is five years old. Yeah. It, it is the, the you had previously made something called GroupMe. Yeah, uh, messaging startup. Um, built it, got really hot really fast. Yeah. Sold it pretty yeah. quickly. Um, and then I remember when I heard you were doing this, I thought, oh, well, that's a fun thing for a, a young guy who's made a bunch of money. Now you can go indulge your, you like music, and so you're going to do a music startup. That's, right. that's nice. Yeah. Good for you. You're not going to harm anyone. That's, that was a feeling a lot of people thought, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was your original thinking when you wanted to build this thing? Uh, I mean, look, if you are, so, you know, I'm a hardcore music fan. I see, I've seen Fish over 150 times. Like, it's like, I go love live music. It's where I get my energy. And Are you a musician yourself? So here's the thing. I'm a bad musician. Yeah. You know, like, I, I play, try to play guitar for hours and hours and hours, and just, just it's not there from the rhythmic sense of it. And um, so, you know, if when I discovered software, I was like, oh, I could play this instrument. You know, that's just where my creativity could yeah. flow. And so there's just like a dream to merge those two worlds. And I think a lot of programmers have that. And if you, you get... You there's a get, math brain and a music brain that kind of sync up pretty nicely, I think, for some people. Yeah, and when you see, you know, when you first learn programming, there's some really powerful things you can get inspired by. Like open source is like, wait, all these people working together? You're like collaborating with the world when you use open source software. Even the tools and the things about not repeating yourself and like how to automate things and like it's pretty amazing and then I think at some point if you love music you wonder like where how do musicians handle this what's their process like the core concept was how do we bring these amazing uh, you know parts of the the software development ecosystem to music and I met uh, my co-founder of the company Matt um, and he had been an audio engineer for half his life and it was still we didn't start wanting to work on this because it was too crazy of an idea because music, it's just like, do anything. Steve, please do anything but a music company, right? But when my— Because music has traditionally been the graveyard of, dead of bodies technology everywhere. startups. Yeah. yeah. And then when, you know, when a musician friend of mine got into programming, and then he said, yo, where's GitHub for music? I was like, all right, if it's coming from that angle, I got to do this. I have a super savvy audience, but some of them still might, know what, might not know what GitHub is. Yeah, so GitHub is like the kind of like— most, I would say, iconic or known collaborate, piece of collaboration in software development. It's the backup version control way you can kind of work with each other on the same you know, code base. It's and a way for software developers to collaborate. To, to collaborate. Yeah. And a lot of it's done literally out in the open. I'm trying to solve this problem. Can someone help me? It's yeah, kind of a, a message board. Right? There's a whole open side of it yeah. of like you know, collaborating with the world. And then if you're every company who's privately you know, working on their code too is using some kind of version control. The most popular one is called Git, and then GitHub is basically the service that hosts repositories mm-hmm. for you. And did you know that this is how music is made, and and there is a world where someone would want to pull down a two yeah. second sample and build a song based around that, or I would augment a song or whatever it is. So that came like when we first we were first focused just on a version control system. So it would back up and help you collaborate on tracks. 
And then, you know, as that was working and flowing, we were like, how else do we remove creative bottlenecks? Because it's all about removing. So, so initially, the idea was just we're going to make software. It's kind of the most boring software ever. That, that it's the least sexy. In part the same way that Slack was, yeah, yeah. in theory, theory unsexy, and now yeah. it's sexy, right? Yeah. But it's just we're just going to help people who are not in the same place collaborate on a project in Correct. real time. And then, like you know, with a bigger thesis of we're unblocking creativity, so we're letting creativity flow and fostering an open ecosystem. Because we know if people are learning from each other and able to get out there and and uh, and work with each other, it's going to move music to move faster and better. And then we eventually got to the point where people were adopting the the version control system, but it needed more work, and we needed to monetize and get out there faster. And we saw that the sounds was like clearly something that people were doing, and it was mostly just pirated. Everyone was stealing the sounds. And there wasn't a good user experience or business model that made sense for getting these little pieces of content. Even a few years ago, when we're well into the idea that if you're going to make music, you actually need to clear it, and you need to buy it from someone. I mean, we're talking like 99% piracy rates in the music creation space. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it was a unique perspective for us to uh, have had venture funding in the space because we, we had this data and opinion on what the world should look like, but there's no market comps because... You know, it's ninety nine percent pirated. So, and then so so this is a subscription service, right? So yep. this is a, a there's I assume there's a free version, and then if I'm making music, yep. uh, I'm paying you what ten bucks a month? Yes, that starts at seven ninety nine. So for seven ninety nine, you know, a kid in their bedroom can get the same sounds that the Grammy award winning producer is getting. So I can't remember when I heard that you were doing this. I said, oh, well, that's again interesting. I can't imagine there are, I got to assume it's a really small number of people who are either making music professionally and need this. Mm-hmm. And then even if you think of like, you know, the prosumers, the people mm-hmm. who are going to whatever the equivalent of Guitar Center is today, mm-hmm. that's a pretty small group, right? So even if you sold to all of them, you've got a really tiny business, but you've got a lot of folks using it. Now. Yeah, you, th- you know, it's way bigger than you think. We think there's 40 million software-based musicians out there today. I started getting, my favorite part of this was I started getting all these parents who had like young teenagers coming to me being like, so can you get, can my child get some more credits? And I'm like, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, my kid either plays Fortnite or makes music with Splice. And we kept hearing this narrative and we're like, wow, I guess this is a thing. And then all of a sudden, like we show up in our first music video and it's literally a kid playing Fortnite. It's uh, and then going over his computer and there's Splice. And it's a uh, it's an artist named Jumex. The song's called Loner. It's on YouTube. It's five and a half million views, and it's you know splicing their first music video. Well, let's add to that uh, view total. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bookmark that the video. Make sure you're using proper filters and controls. <laughs> uh, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with Steve. Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. 
And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Back here with Steve Martizzi, who is still running a successful music startup. How many years? <laughs> You're five years into this? I, I think it's a little over. We're getting towards six. And here you've now, raised yeah. a giant pile of money, $100 million-ish. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. And, and, and we, we're all sophisticated here. We know that raising a lot of money yeah. does not indicate success. Correct. On the other hand, it means that you have successfully convinced investors multiple times mm-hmm. that what you're doing is a real business. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you're getting into music, your <laughs> tech music, a terrible idea. On the other hand, you had a successful yeah. first company. Yeah. How does it work when you're going out to backers and saying, "I have this idea. It's about music. Don't, don't, don't run away." That's. I mean, that's the. That it was a really interesting process for me, you know. Um, but the good news is, I had a core set of people who truly believed in the world we were seeing, uh, and you know, the unions were. Did they believe in 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 what you were telling them, or they said, "Well, Steve made us a bunch of money, so we're going to invest him in, in him again, second time entrepreneur." It's no, a better there, bet. There were there were investors who I had made a bunch of money that had no interest in investing in a music company. Yeah, um, said, thank you, but no. Just like anything else, man, we're there, you know. And uh, but you know, the Union Square Ventures team, on the other hand, when we showed them the vision of the world we wanted to create. And I explained the mapping of the software, the creative flow, the direction towards the software-based uh, in- being the instrument. That was, like I think, one of their fastest yeses ever. But it was only that because I'm sure I came in with a pedigree of success as yeah, well. That gets you in the door. Look, if you go into any VC with a market risk, you're in an uphill battle. And the music is a bad market. And you know you just can't win that. And that's where I think so many people who fail to raise money, they don't understand they're being rejected, not because... The idea is not good for, you know, could be a good business. It's not a venture scale opportunity. And the market's the instant disqualifier there. So right. we had to spend, we spent a lot of time, uh, you know, with our, we, we think we have some of the best market data there is about music. And what's been amazing post Spotify is like, you know, you're seeing a great tailwind for the world that we're, we think exists. Um, so speaking of Spotify, yeah. Um, they have made a point of saying we w- there's we have a business where we sell Peter a subscription mm-hmm. for ten dollars. Um, there's also an advertising business, and also a new thing we're going to do is start providing services to musicians. Yeah, that's one version of of a sort of a new market for music. And then there's a bunch of people who are providing services to mid slash long tail mm-hmm. musicians slash people working out of their basements who maybe are just doing it for fun, mm-hmm. um, and they want to provide various services. So on the one hand, it seems like you fit nicely into that group mm-hmm. of people who are interested in this, and also there's a lot of competition. Maybe they're not doing directly what you're doing, but yeah. it seems like there's a lot of blurring of lines. Like, um, do you guys help me distribute the song once I've made it? No. No, uh, so you're out of this, because there's a bunch of people who are in that business. Yeah, this is what's great, is like our field is, is really incremental revenue to the entire space. This is like being able to monetize the pieces of your work and not just the finished sounds is like totally newfound revenue. That's why we can do stuff with all these big artists who are like, wait, I want to give this to the world. I want people to see my creative process and it's great revenue as well. So we're not taking away from anyone. Um, and so it's really been like a m- kind of market defining space. 
So I'm paying you as a as a as a splice user yeah. eight ish or more dollars yeah. per month. Um, that allows me to use this library of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, when I download the sample, do I have to pay for that directly? Or yeah, so for, the for the seven ninety nine, you get a hundred download credits, uh -huh. and just about everything on Splice is one credit. And then, so we take the subscription revenue per month, and then we distribute it pro rata based on your down who gets the download credits that month. And so I'm assuming if I'm the person who made that two second mm -hmm. drum beat or whatever it is, I'm getting the majority of that revenue. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah, it's, it's all the deals are different. Some stuff's done with in partnership. Some people sometimes we pay for the production of things, and then other things we license from third parties. So it's all a bit different, but it's really favorable to the artist. And the person who makes it gets paid in some mm -hmm. way. And then is that a one-time transaction? Uh, so what's cool about that is like their content's always up there. So we have people who's, who are still getting large royalty checks every month because new people coming in are downloading their right. stuff but again. They're, but they're only, their stuff paid, they only, they're only getting paid when someone downloads slash buys. Yeah, example, they, get a, right? they get a credit in their – they get a pro rata share that month based on the fact that that one person, right. each person who downloaded so their stuff. So what I'm getting to is yeah. – is, the Demi Lovato uh, mm -hmm. example that I use, someone made that drum beat. Yeah. It gets on a giant hit song. Mm -hmm. Do they participate no. in whatever revenue that generates? Do you guys participate in whatever revenue that generates? No, that's the beauty of uh, of this like abstraction where we don't get involved in that, and it's just royalty-free. So they, you know, we're just making people that small amount uh, from this large pool for each of their individual sounds and not participating in that track. And that's where, you know, you don't have to get tied up in negotiating licenses or doing that. And so all these producers can, like, freely express themselves with the sounds on our platform without fear of, like, oh, am I going to be able to clear this? Uh, you know, am I going to get sued and all that? So I get that that makes it clean. Yeah. And, the, and on the one hand, that's appealing to a lot of people, mm -hmm. probably appealing to you guys legally, yeah. right? On the other hand, I would assume both for you guys and especially for your mm -hmm. VC backers, it's like, we're leaving a lot of money on the table. We're creating value for this thing that could theoretically generate a ton of value down the road. Isn't there some way we want to participate in this? Yeah, look, I think that for this specific segment of sounds, a lot of these things are just, you know, the most popular sound... Uh, for a while, it got beat recently. It's just like, uh, you know, this this artist Crane hits a piece of bamboo on a table, and that's the bamboo snare. And it's just the, you know, like sound. And like to think that, that, that he's going to get royalties on that track for that sound, is the person probably wouldn't use it. And so this is a model that enables this segment of artists to be able to get by the way, Crane's career, he, people want to collaborate with him. His, his, he's built it's his career from this. Hitting a piece of bamboo on a literally hitting table. Piece of bamboo. And, and I, like, look, we had a duo, Gray. They were working at Fuddruckers. And they. I've been to Fuddruckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they put their sounds on Splice, made enough money to quit their jobs, went full time. And then they had their hit uh, Starvin with Zed. And then this year was uh, The Middle, which was nominated for a Grammy Song of the Year. I know that song. Yeah. I'm an old man. I know that's made with Splice. Yeah. Made really. with Splice by a Splice, you know, also someone who makes sounds for Splice. So there's no sort of back of your mind or back of the pitch deck or somewhere you go, and eventually we can move upstream and be a bigger participant in this. There's, there's different just types. made an eye roll slash smile. I, yeah, I mean, there's different types of content, right? There's longer form content. We think we, for this type of content, it's the exact right model. Because we don't want to block creativity from flowing, and people need sometimes those fills, the phrases, these things. We think there are other types of content 
that make more sense to be royalty, you know, bearing content. But Splice Sounds is particularly designed for this type of content. And there are others. We don't think it mixes together, but we think there are different worlds out there in which it's totally right to take royalties on tracks. So I'm sorry, what would that be like? So what's the longer form version of that? I mean, if you go into like uh, that L.A. songwriting system, there are people who are known for just writing, you know, entire Melodies, mm-hmm. uh, like they're called top lines, they're vocals, and the melodies associated with those. Those are substantial pieces. That is like the meat of the track. Right. It probably has the hook in there. It has the, it's the a cool song. vibe. It's a song, but it's a frag. It's the like, you know, it's only one part. It's the vocal sign. But that, it's a significant part of yeah, the song, and, and that, it's not the kind of thing you can you could use an element of. And, and that should, you know, that should have royalties associated with it. Yeah. But, you know, what's amazing, you take an artist like Kara. She was on our platform. She was working at Jersey Mike Subs as a shift manager, and we did a vocal. It's a through line here. We got the Fuddruck people. The yeah, yeah. People. Oh, yeah. We, so you did have sponsors for this round. Yeah. It was, yes. <laughs> uh, so she was working there. And Someone worked at Sweet Greens. Yeah, there you go. I, do I have to disclose I'm a Sweet Green investor there? Right. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I got to talk to you. I don't want like the, the old credit card only thing. <laughs> uh, so Kara does a vocal pack with us, and she makes enough money to quit her job in a big way. And now she has an amazing publishing deal. She's on, like, David Guetta albums. No, what's funny is her voices are now just showing up everywhere because she's got these royalty-free kind of oohs and ahs and, frag- and fragments and stuff like that. And she's showed up all over electronic music. And that's cool. People can use that. She can. It's royalty-free, but now they want her to write tracks with her. They want to write tracks with her. So now she's in co-writing sessions with everybody. Her career, she leveled up her career by doing the royalty-free, and now she can participate in shared royalty stuff. And dumb question, yeah. but it, it seems like all this stuff, once it becomes popular, once the mm-hmm. guy hitting the bamboo on the table, yeah. oh, that's a sound I want. It mm-hmm. also seems like that's a sound that's relatively easy to to rip off. You could recreate it yourself. You could screw around with it. It mm-hmm. seems like it'd be very hard to actually sort of police, like, is that the real sample or is that a knockoff? Mm-hmm. Same thing. Anyone's vocals. Um, do you guys worry about that? Do your, do your artists worry about that? I mean, for us, the user experience of Splice, it's like faster than the, the system finder for listening to sound. And like, we just got to make sure that you're using not just the contents of Splice, but the actual service itself for accessing sound. And as long as that's the play, then it's that's what's important for us. Because you can go get this stuff somewhere else. Again, the, the guy who made Lil Nas, Lil Nas X <laughs> used that sample without going through there, you. He found, he found that guy in the Netherlands. Yeah, there are, there are pirated sites out there. There are sources to get things illegally, but like the magic of Splice is similar to like what happened to Spotify, right? Like when the Jay-Z album wasn't on Spotify, I didn't listen to it. And because it's become my like home base for for new music other than my fish music. You remind me, I, I gotta to I gotta go back and check on Tidal because they I keep waiting to like get a press release saying someone that has bought the rights to Tidal and it's it, but it's still there. We'll see. I, I got an amazing notification before I walked in here that there was a new Mark Ronson album out and I was like, wow, Spotify, you like you get me, you know? And so uh, that experience, you just gotta make sure you're innovating on both the business model and the user experience. You're elevating the right content, you know, for for the user in that moment. Like the best compliments we get about Splice is we are the cure for writer's block, you know, because like at any point in time, I might just, if I don't have anything, I might just go listen to a bunch of random stuff to get inspiration. Or if I need a specific thing in my head, we have it. And so we're always there for you. And that, that to me, when I have an artist tell me that, I, I get really excited. Sort of the digital equivalent of sort of rooting through the stacks of albums for... Yeah, the yeah, cool the crate idea. diving. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you think music evolves over the next 
10 years or so. I mean, does this become the dominant way people make music? Is, is it already the dominant way people make music? Yeah, look, the software, software is going to be... The, like, here's the thing. Software is inherently this blank canvas opportunity. Instruments do... Like, constraints breed creativity. So, you know, that's why the guitar, you can master this device and, like, it's going to create different sounds because you're a master of it. New instruments will come out, either physical or digital. And, you know, what's cool about this content, about Splice, is, like, whatever kind of you're making, it's this infinite, basically almost feels infinite library of sound to be your companion. So you, it, what is going to be music can be inherently more collaborative, you know, and that's, that's happening right now. And so you see it with, you know, the, the writer's credits on these tracks. Some of them have 15 writers on them. So Yeah, I mean, sometimes, though, that's because they're lifting. So, I mean, sometimes there's a lot of credits because someone has taken a bunch mm -hmm. of samples and you're crediting the people who made mm -hmm. that original music. Um, I consider that collaboration, yeah. though. You know, like to me— Even, even, if, even if the musician's long dead? I mean, it, it's like similar to my, me using other people's code libraries, like— it's still collaboration to me. I think there's a mo different modalities of collaboration. There's like a unilateral side, and then there's the co-writing yeah. modality. But that's just that's just trending up. Do you bump into people who still who still say, you know, look, that's it's fine. It's I get it. It's it's good for when you're you know dancing or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this isn't real music. Real music is a guy and a guitar, and he has this great lick and whatever it is. I tell you this, like my uh, my VP of engineering, Juan Pablo, was. He's into screaming metal, and we did a screaming metal pack once on Splice, and he's like, oh, man, my favorite band, We Came as Romans, should use Splice. And someone overheard him in the office and was like, oh, I know, I know the guy, I'll, I'll message him. And it turns out he used the version control system, the, get the plugins from us, sounds, every, it was his writing tool. And he's writing screaming rock and roll. Screaming metal is screaming metal. what it sounds like? It's screaming like, you know, like yeah. that's what he's writing. But so it's. I want to it, sample that, by the way. <laughs> we do want to make an employee's, uh, you know, ad lib splice pack at some point. Unfortunately, that guy Kyle, he, he he passed away recently, which was sad for my, you know, for everybody. But uh, it was a, it was a moment to see that it's not electronic music. It's not just hip hop. It's all we try to represent all musicians, and so you know we spend we have a lot of work going on with our creator projects, our creator class, which is bringing up young kids with a lot of potential, teaching them how to do sound design. Um, so we're really trying to make sure we can represent the entire world with content. And is there a version of this that, that moves beyond music? That goes, look, this, the whole idea of collaborating with artists, this doesn't have to be solely music. We could do it. We could do film. We have crazy sound effects. Like, we have an amazing sound effects library. We haven't, you know, Splice has not talked... We haven't positioned ourselves outside of music yet, but the where we get a lot of, uh, of people. I remember talking to this guy Felix, who used us for like the Star Wars Episode Seven trailer. You know that was that was the version control system. But we've heard about us being used a lot for film scoring. Uh, we just haven't positioned it that way mm -hmm. yet. But like I, you know, we have that's still music, right? Could you imagine just saying, "Look, someone's got to work collaboratively on video." No, we this, have this could all work. We have that. more farm animal sounds than I thought I'd ever need, but plenty of them. We have you know sword fights. We have. I think we're doing a pack of like glaciers, so like you're glaciers gonna, melting. You're not going to let me tease you into or get you into teasing a new business. Oh, you, let's tease away. There's a ton of opportunity waiting for us there. Yeah. I, you know, I wish I could tell you that I'm turning it on tomorrow, but it's like that's where the potential lies. Uh, I think the gamer space is one we're looking at a lot too, is that you know, people who need effects, sound effects for their video games or simple loops and music that's generative, we have some really, we have an incredible library. And so that's, that's on the table for us. 
What's the connection between Splice and GroupMe? There, there's an obvious one, which is that you GroupMe was successful. You, it gave you the ability to build a second business. Is there any other through line Huge there? Huge through line. So, GroupMe, I like, GroupMe was made to go to concerts. Was so that was it was is group messaging. Yeah, I mean, went back when that was a novel idea. Didn't exist. Yeah. So, my co-founder and I, um, we built it in 24 hours at a hackathon, and it was made to go to a concert with our friends. And that was the inspiration. And uh, it turns out it was useful for a whole lot more things. You know what's crazy about that? It's still f- like it's 44 overall free app in the app you store. You still go use the app. 44. Yeah, Microsoft. Yeah. I don't know if they know they own it, but they own it. Um, yeah, it's still incredibly popular. It's uh, it's unbelievable. I think I, the, if you just nail a really great cohort like college, every new incoming class picks it up from the upperclassmen, and they still it just perpetuates. So it was solving our own problem, and it was a music problem. I want to tell people the group me story because it's yeah. it's. Uh, I just think all these stories are interesting. But this was f- kind of a different era of web startups that yeah. that now seems sort of passe, which is a couple guys go to a hackathon, make something, it kind of blows up overnight, they sell it. it can still happen. I think it can still happen, but much less of it now. It seems like there's. I don't know. I think that like the magic of that was just that we had a real problem to solve. I spent a lot of time. I love that raw creation mode of just like knowing exactly what you want to exist and finding the right APIs, putting a weird spin on it and solving your problem. Like, I think those opportunities are out there. You just got to find the gaps in like when a new platform emerges that just doesn't have what you need, you know? Yeah, it just seems like a lot of the platforms are pretty developed and and the platforms themselves, if they see anything that that they need, they're going to buy it right away. Uh, Yeah, I hear Um, you. And, you know, just as someone who writes about this stuff, I'm trying to, I'm hard pressed to think of the last big sort of, obviously there have been some, but just not many of that. So back to your story. So you guys go to this hackathon. when, When was that? 2010, May 2010? 2010. Yeah. So Twitter has been hatched. Facebook's been mm-hmm. up and running for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you met your co-founder where? Jared and I had known each other through music and friends and seen concerts together. He's going to fish concerts. Years. Yeah. Um, biscuits, yeah. And, and your thought was, let's think of a business idea slash No, we'd wanted, we wanted to figure out what to work on together for a long time. You mean you wanted to do a thing? Yeah, we, we were friends, and he would pitch me ideas all the time, and I would be like, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. And I'd won a hackathon at Guilt Group, and I was like, oh, shit, I can build stuff. You've worked at Guilt Group. So I you were in New Guilt. York, and you didn't have the thought, I need to go to San Francisco to actually I, make a I career of this. I don't think I could. I like New York a lot. Yeah. New York's my home. So, yeah, no, I, de- I never felt drawn out there at all. I had previous startups that weren't successful, and then went to Guilt for a year, really learned how to ship software. It was an amazing place to learn. I mean, you had to be Amazon scale for 15 minutes a day. But just to pull that off for 15 minutes was like, you got a chance at like being the biggest, and then you got a, a whole day to figure out how to do it again. This was the flash sale. It oh, was my temporarily God. It was the greatest. Yeah. It was the greatest learning environment because you literally had to be it, and then you could reflect for the, you know a couple hours, and then you had to be it again. It was like an unbelievable challenge and great learning environment. So you know, I kind of felt like I had acquired enough engineering tools that when the right idea hit, I could build fast. And Guilt had us do a hackathon because the developers, developers are always like, slightly unhappy about the system and they gave us a chance to shine and I, you know, built something in 24 hours, won the hackathon, won an iPad, but I wasn't allowed to continue working on that project. I had like managed to get all of the, the, (laughs) all the real time revenue of all of our competitors and just build a dashboard that would show you all the revenue. 
And they were like, we can't touch this. this they said that's a great thing that we can never just have. Never pretend have you, this. Pretend you just, never built just, this. Yeah, it was not okay. Because there's some scraping involved, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're just like, you're leaking your inventory counts on your APIs. I'm going to hit it when it first goes online, tell you, you, oh, you have 100, and then 15 minutes later, you have 75, you know? So, uh, but yeah, they couldn't touch that. And I got frustrated. I was like, you know, what the fuck, you know? Uh, but I was like, wow, I guess I can build something in 24 hours. Uh, so when the hackathon came around, I knew I was going to enter it, but I didn't know really what it was going to be. There was going to be like um, a, a Twitter kind of thing where you could tweet at Hugo Chavez for on Twitter. If you didn't like his policies, you could auto-tweet whenever he tweeted. And uh, this was back when people were building... Twitter bots, yeah. <laughs> and then Jared Jared came with the idea, and I was like, oh, let's do that. And um, built it in 24 hours, and it was in production right away. Like, we were using it. And then our dev team at Guild started using it. Like, people started using it. And so it was a rocket ship. It was the craziest experience. You know, like, you could not try to recreate that. And there's a New York sort of VC community that was pretty much anything that popped up. There was a, They all sort of knew who was building something interesting. You quickly got funding for that. I remember you guys going to South by Southwest, awesome. and you were sort of like maybe one of the last mm-hmm. sort of consumer startups that went to Austin and said, here's our cool product, yeah. and that actually like helped you grow the product. By the way, I think that's actually still doable if your product makes South by Southwest better. Right, that's the that was the magic. We just you, the, the why that South by Southwest era of mobile happened is we all of a sudden got these phones. There was all this potential to make live experiences better. Twitter, Foursquare, and us, and that's where people who thought they had to go to South by Southwest to launch stuff, it was like, well, is your is your product specifically making this experience better? Mm-hmm. And that to me was the the big difference. I kind of had that epiphany about scooters. When I yeah. went in March. Yeah, like, when I saw oh, it was there, I was sense. like, oh, there's another one that makes things better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it took years to for people. Also, to f- by the way, incredibly dangerous. Incredibly you dangerous. You get 100,000 people who drunk driving yeah, scooters. Yeah. And yeah, really fun. fun. Yeah. Really fun. Both. <laughs> Both. All those things combined <laughs> in one product. So you guys go there. Yeah. That helps you take off. That helped and a lot. really quickly you sold. Yeah, we sold in uh, 13 months. 13 months. Yeah. And what was that decision like? You know, it was really hard because... Like, yeah, maybe that window of the platform era is closing. Like, iMessage got announced. Google announced Google+. Facebook had done an acquisition to build Messenger uh, as an independent standalone app. And we were just looking for a partner to help us go international because we were only local. We were only in the U.S. based on the way our system had worked. And Skype was like, okay, we, we should form a partnership. We should do this. And then it felt like, you know, we debated whether we should raise more money or... Uh, the part they just were like, well, instead of dating, let's become, let's get married. Mm-hmm. And it was a really, you know, there was a big Skype at the time. So it, it was, there was a ton of potential. And so we kind of saw a unified vision there and, um, and went down that path. So, but you guys had raised like $10 million. Yeah, we'd raised like $11 million total. You ended up like selling for somewhere between 40 and 80 depending on which that, reporter you believe. Who says 40? It was no. a big pile of money. <laughs> I remember, great. I remember, there was a, it doesn't, I'm not going to get yeah, into yeah. early tech blogging. It was wild. Disputes. Yeah, it was wild. So, but it was, it was a significant amount of money yeah, it was. for you and your partners and your, your investors made a bunch of money. But I'm yeah. assuming that at some point during that discussion, some of your investors also said, well, this is great, but we... If they're willing to pay you that much, we can do much better. This, yeah. could, this could be a really, really big business. Let's go for that. I'm very happy that whatever path I've taken in life has made me, got me to splice because mm-hmm. I really love what I do. I'll tell you, the acquisition was like the hindsight on it is a little interesting, right? We, when we finally checked the domain names of our email addresses, there was like 12,000 Verizon employees, 7,000 Best Buy employees, 
like so many enterprises were using us and we had an awesome desktop app like you know like there was a there was an enterprise play that we didn't even yeah. get a chance to explore inside um, Skype Microsoft because like we already did that part we do we do enterprise so we ran our business on on GroupMe so there you know in hindsight maybe there was a ton of opportunity but like yeah I'm, I'm not even asking you to, to go over the regrets yeah. yet I'm just wondering <laughs> I think this is always an interesting thing I've talked about this on the, here before and it's a pretty sort of niche problem but it's yeah. relevant yeah, yeah, yeah. to the startups yeah. right which is for you guys, this is your entire life. Yeah. You're still young, but still it's everything. It's super meaningful to yeah. you. The investors, you're one of many different companies they've invested in. Mm-hmm. And what they don't want, they're happy that they put in $10 million and got back mm-hmm. 40 or 80 whatever the yeah. number is. But what they really want is to get back a billion. Well, yes. Yeah, right? so, some well, of them, so some of them will push for you to say, no, no, let's let's go all the way. And by the way, Kosla, Kosla was a $10 million check. And they, you know— they were like, "Do you really want to do this?" Like, because they wanted to play the long game. Mm-hmm. But we were the f- we returned like the SV Angel Fund, the first SV Angel Fund, uh, a bunch of like Box Group, Lear, like these people. Yeah, no, I know a bunch of people who made a bunch of money. That from was you. the first. That was a New York validating moment. Yeah. So, like for them, there was a quick return in early funds. So, like our angel support, you know, BetaWorks, like it was. It was a great outcome for New York City, to be honest, to see a social innovation happen. That like us and Venmo were like the same time, and are still two like very widely used consumer apps. Yeah. So I think in the end, for the investors, this was a great outcome because it showed that we could have rapid innovation here. We could be, you know, we could sell to a company on the West Coast, and I think it. I think it helped all of them um, and and us legitimize ourselves here in New York. Venmo is a company that started in New York, mm-hmm. seemed pretty interesting, kind of never really took off, and then post acquisition yeah. has become a verb. Yeah, that could have happened with GroupMe. Yeah. Didn't you guys went to work for Skype? Did you imagine you were going to work for Skype long term? I, I tried to say air quote save Skype because you know that software was so revolutionary, but it was designed for the desktop, and they never really got the mobile side of that going the way they wanted to. And I think that's what we were supposed to be there for. Um, but then they got acquired by Microsoft. And so everything changed to like integrating up towards link and uh, and and doing just priority change. We were in a big system. And so, you know, I, I thought it was a really compelling opportunity to like get in front of all of the world's kind of communication. And uh, you know, it, it just didn't work out that is, way. in retrospect, is there a way that being older now, if you went into a big company now, that you'd be able to navigate your way? more effectively, or is that just, it was never going to work structurally? I don't even know if I am prepared today to handle how hard that would have been bureaucratically if I was still in the small... Teeny tiny startup yeah. that got bought by it's a like smaller It's like the fish company. that gobbled yeah. the fish that gobbled the fish. Honestly, I don't know that I would have been able to do that today. I think that, you know, all the outcomes were good. Like, I think Microsoft has transformed their company. Like, the uh, the GitHub acquisition is amazing. You know, I hope they give GroupMe the attention. It's still, like... Yeah, there's over 50 million users, I think, on it, and so and it's getting kids. I hope they. I would, Microsoft use it. <laughs> Hear <laughs> that, something. Microsoft? Get on. <laughs> I'm always interested in talking about who built one company or building another. Yeah. Like we talked about beyond saying, now I have the capacity to take this terrible music idea yeah. I have and, and, and spend time on it. What else are you taking from that experience that you're applying to the second startup? I have no interest in selling Splice. Like it's. Um, to me, but you've raised hundred million dollars, so well. I mean, there's other paths than selling, you yeah. know. So I, I'm well, there's kind of only one path. I'm in it for the long haul. All right, yeah, and like that, we've had that opportunity multiple times with it, and like it's not, 
to me, it's become so vital to musicians. It really is amazing. Like you talk to artists, like it's powerful. And I think that I can't see myself. I don't have the next thing in my head. I always, yes, I wake up with ideas every morning, but I used to like get like, oh, I have to go build something else. I have to go do something. But like, I'm like in, and I've never felt that in before. And like, so now it's like going through the the transition from founder, kind of creator, founder to CEO is like, that's a whole different set of challenges. How many, how many employees did you have at, at, at GroupMe? We sold it with 27. And you're now at what, at this no, place? Mid hundreds. So that's a hugely different management thing. And, totally. and, and you often around the time we're at now, someone starts saying, hey, Steve, you had an awesome idea and that mm-hmm. was great and you built this thing. Now we need to bring in some help. Mm-hmm. And either we're going to replace you or we're going to bring in a... Cheryl or whoever we call it now. We don't call it a Cheryl anymore. Yeah. Do you have those discussions? Do you, yeah. do you, do you want to be CEO? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I've, I made a firm commitment to being CEO and building a great team around me. And like, it's just requires a lot of work and a lot of, you know, the shift from founder to CEO is, is something you, you need to be dedicated to and you need to get ahead of it as fast as you can in the process. Always be learning faster, get coaching and mentoring. And, you know, use your board to try to learn what great is out there and build a great team around you. And then do the, the things you don't realize how important they are, like defining company values. I finally articulated company values. And I'm like, wow, like these things are important. You know, you can refer to them and like you have to give people like get the stuff out of your head and get it documented so that it's like the team can like learn from things and not just have to go one-on-one in meetings with you. I feel like I've talked to many entrepreneurs who say, yeah. look at me and they say, company value is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. We didn't click until we figured it out yeah. or we did that from the get-go and it's really helped us. And I don't remember being at a company where I could tell you what the company values are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that it's a, Vox Media is a fantastic mm-hmm. company. Thank you, Jim Bankoff. But I, it's hard for me to imagine sort of what the company values are other than we make good stuff and try to treat each other well. Yeah, so I quizzed the, like, uh, the leadership team, like we've only, they've only been out for like a month or two. Mm-hmm. And I quizzed the leadership team and people got three out of five, Yeah, you know, and they've only been out for a month or two. And like the first one is really something that we live, like we be an inclusive and respectful collaborator. Like we build collaborative music experiences. We have a distributed engineering team. Like we have to live that one. It's really important. And then being the artist advocate, like that's our customer first, like get in the mind of the creator. And, Pe- and writing that stuff down, even yeah. though you're already doing it. Mm-hmm helps you why but what's amazing is the hr team and everyone it's like integrated into the onboarding it's integrated into the like interview process it's like people can use it as a language to talk to each other and be like hey you're not representing the values right now or that decision is not in alignment with this and it's hard to you know it, it by building those kind of systems it's less like just feeling and, and people align to things. Because like now as CEO, you're just trying to get as much alignment as you can. And it's been super helpful. And the last one is continuous improvement. That is the, the kind of catch-all where it's like, as long as you're open to growth, you might've gotten three out of five of them, but like you want to get five out of five of them. Do we have a favorite Splice product recommendation for someone? Go listen to this. It's my favorite thing that someone made with Splice. Oh man. All right. So let's think about that for First a second. thought, best thought. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing that I'm loving the most about it is, like, our YouTube, to be honest, go check out some of the stories behind the people who are making the top 40 tracks with Splice. What's cool about it, too, is, like, someone like Oak Felder spoke at at Decode. Made Uh, the Demi Lovato song. I should credit him. Thank you. Yes. Uh, And uh, Ian Kirkpatrick, who's done a ton of writing, too. Like, these, these guys come up to me, and they're like, I'm getting more recognized for my Splice videos and Splice packs than I was for any of the hit songs I wrote. 
So like being able to bring the people who are behind the scenes, like go get the Boy Wanda sound pack. Like he was nominated for producer of the year. It's on our site. It came out the same weekend as as he was is nominated for the Grammys. Like see the stories behind these songs. Uh, Boy Wanda writing mob ties with Drake. Like that stuff is that splice too. Like it's all like go get inspired. If you don't make music today, uh, we're a great place to get started. Uh, there's a little online beat maker that we have that you can program a beat on the web. And, uh, it, you know, if you're a parent, talk to your kids about music. It's, I was, I was going to say, if you don't know what any of these things mean, ask your kid to yeah, show you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, honestly, like, giving them a Splice subscription, that that's you, you'll hear what comes out of it. It's really go, cool. Go get your kid a Splice subscription. There's the plug. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That was Steve Martosi. As you know, now is Jason Del Rey to talk about Amazon and Instagram and the connection between media and commerce, which is pretty interesting. Listen up. I'm here with Jason Del Rey, my friend, my colleague, uh, e-commerce reporter extraordinaire, e-commerce conference producer extraordinaire, temporary leader of, of Recode. At one point. At yeah. one point, yeah. Uh, podcaster extraordinaire. This is making me very stressed. You should be. But you're normally very stressed anyway. You are, you are a, uh, a high-stress guy. 37 years old, a lot of gray hair. That's me. We're going to chillax here for a second. Great. Just, just have some slow, low talk about commerce and media. Um, you got a new podcast. What's it called? It's called Land of the Giants. It is awesome. It's all about? Amazon. So go subscribe to it now. We're going to talk about it a little later. I, but since I've got you here in the studio, I want to ask you some media questions, some thoughts I have about media and selling and how they combine. You missed I, you missed one thing in my bio. Oh, what? Um, when we met each other, yeah. I was a media reporter. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, trying to be you. I got you off the beat. You did get me off the beat. That's my main strategy is to dissuade other people from doing what I'm doing. At one point, we had a whole bunch of media reporters here. It was pretty yeah. – um, it, it's thinned out now. But anyway, keep they going. keep making more of us, though, is the problem. It's a special breed. Uh, Jason, I'm a big Instagram user. I've become a big Instagram user, and I'm noticing lots of ads. They're almost all for fashion. Some of them are for brands I know. Some of them, I think, are for brands that just were created just for Instagram. It seems to me that I've been hearing people talk about sort of marrying commerce and media online forever kind of doesn't really happen um, or happens in very specific ways. It seems like if anyone's going to crack the code, and maybe they're already doing it, it's going to be Instagram. It seems like as big a business as they are now, and they're clearly the growth business for Facebook, if I had to bet, I think they're going to get much, much, much bigger. I think they have a good combination of the ability to sort of show you a cool image and, mm -hmm. then, and then steer you towards commerce. Do you think I'm right, Jason Delray? I think you're right for a specific type of commerce, uh -huh. which is sort of one-off discovery Type I saw some Mac Weldon underwear. It looks pretty cool. Click through. Now, I, I don't know if it's for code. Yeah, recode you, for 20% off. You used to have to click through. Now, they're, they've started to roll out being able to purchase directly through the app, what they would call in the industry, making it frictionless. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that'll be a thing. And it's sort, sort of, of impulse by the equivalent of walking by the end cap of an aisle going, oh, huh. Yes. And... For all the amazing things Amazon does, what it doesn't do great is sort of spur impulse buying or allow you to sort of browse in a way you might have going through a mall. Right. Amazon's great. When you know you want to get something, you go get it. They will try to sell you other stuff. 
They will. But it's not the same as walking through a store and sort of picking up stuff on the way to get the milk that you intended to get in the first place. And this is, since I've started covering e-commerce six years ago, there's sort of been this idea that there's a race to be that place online. It seems like Instagram has the best shot right now. I've been saying that, and I think a lot of smarter people have been saying that for the last few years, and it's still not fully reality. So I think you're right. I don't know what that timeline looks like. So but for years, people, you know, every every year and a half, someone like Marissa Mayer at one point was running Yahoo or someone else would go, you know, it turns out that people like reading Vogue magazine, not just for the content, but for the ads. And we want to create an experience that's like that where it's engaging, whether or not you're looking at an ad or not. And it seems like that's what Instagram is. It seems like that is what people have been trying to create for a long time. You said, well, they're going to be really good at the sort of one-off, the, you know, see that thing, click it. What aren't they going to be good at? I mean, the the idea of building a basket of items. So I don't think you're going to go to Instagram to shop. They'd love for you to do that. But at their size, even if you're just buying serendipitously, that could be a huge business. But I don't think you're going to go to Instagram like you would go to the mall. It's not going to be... I don't I know that there's outfit. that direct right. power. I mean, they, they're going to push that way. I think they may have some sort of shop uh, section in the explore part of the app. I just... It still doesn't feel for to me like that's how people use the app. And the risk, of course, is if you push too far, do you turn people off? So and let's, let's flip it around and talk about Amazon. They don't have this sort of discovery. I mean, they will constantly say, you bought this, check this thing out, I bought stuff that way. But they don't have that sort of at least reputation. People are constantly trying to chase after it. Why do you think they haven't bothered to sort of try to create that shopping experience? So they um, probably haven't noticed. They have tried in several ways over the years. Um, Years ago, there was something called Amazon Collections, which looked a bit like Pinterest. You probably haven't heard of it because no one used it. For about two years, at the top of my homepage, I had something that said, discover new products, and you click through. That also kind of looked like Pinterest. I have not seen that in a while. Most recently, they tried starting a social network around products that was called Spark, I believe. Have you heard of that? Nope. No, exactly. So they've tried. They've failed. Their DNA is not this. And so— Their DNA um, is fulfillment. Demand fulfillment. Correct. You know so, you want this thing. We're going to get it to you. You're either going and you're typing in Crest toothpaste, but more often than not, you're going and you're typing in toothpaste. Or I go through a lot of humidifiers in my house because we have dry air and I have two little kids with stuffy noses. So I type in humidifier. That's what they're going I don't at. want to spoil your, your – I've listened to your first episode. It has a snot sucker in it. You just spoiled it. Yeah, I did. But my I'm, poor, not, I'm, not my, telling, I'm not telling you how it's going to appear. I think I've scarred my daughter who um, – Oh, I'm giving it away now. Yeah, yeah, keep it, keep it, keep it for the show. And I wasn't a really a, a, a frequent Amazon user until recently, and I have noticed that for a 2019 website, I'm sort of shocked when I type in a basic query that the results they it requires a lot of work on my end. It seems to figure out what they're showing me uh, over the the years. I guess I figured out there's a difference between buying something that is coming directly from Amazon versus a third party, but that's not always clear on the site. And they don't want. Th- they don't want you to know that or to think about that part. But it would seem to me, since they have this relentless focus on the consumer, like 
that that confusion I have, they mm-hmm. must be okay with when I type in toothpaste and I just get a very random selection. I'm used to searching through Google and having to sort of get my way through it. Um, I'm a little surprised at how unintuitive the Amazon shopping experience mm-hmm. is for a company who dominates e-commerce in 2019. Yeah, the point about the design of the site and sort of the breadth and the, how you could feel overwhelming, like th- that is totally a fair point. There are plenty of people who know the the company even better than I that say, well, they look at the data, and if there was a big issue, yeah. they would know about it and change it. That said, have you noticed what's happened over the last couple of years to the top of search results on There's Amazon? Ads. There's a lot of them. Yeah. There's a lot of them. So they will argue that's one way to, um, well, going back to a previous point, uh, help with discovery of stuff you didn't know you needed. But yeah, I think, I think you know, there are a lot of people in the industry who think there is an opportunity in sort of curating and that Amazon's drive to become sort of the store where you can buy any genuine product in the world, which is what their executives actually say aloud, at some point could be a weakness. It seems like their decision is someone else can go figure out how to create demand and and, and how to build the top of the funnel. When you want to buy something, you're going to come to us. The same way if you go through the mall and you see something you like, you're probably still going to check with us and see if we can deliver it cheaper, et cetera. Yeah, so I'm you guys, nodding, you guys, nodding furiously. You guys yes. go build that. Go for it. We're, we're building warehouses, and we're going to have Yeah, and I, th- I think they'll, they'll continue to dabble in yeah. the other side of that because why not? And they have several teams all the time going after sort of the same thing or opposite things. But I think they've proven they can build the most dominant commerce company in the world by doing one side of that better than anyone else. You mentioned ads. That's a good segue. Um, They have been building this ad business for years, sort of in plain sight. Um, We've been hearing for years there's there's this sort of giant that's going to show up in the ad business. It's now a multiple billion-dollar-a-year business. But I'm not still entirely clear about how they think about it. I think most people who follow media maybe aren't. They know that Amazon now has an ad business. Will you tell us what Google and Facebook and everyone else should be thinking about Amazon as they build their ad business? I think there's one part of that organization that thinks we are continuing to chip away or grow the market share of product searches. Use more and more people start their search on Amazon in the U.S. And frankly, it's easy money. And for a business that their core business has, you know, still relatively slim margins, the overall company wants sort of a hybrid approach to looking at profitability, right? And so you have AWS, super profitable, advertising, super profitable, and those profits allow it to do all sorts of things as a retailer and beyond. Um, so I think there's one so side. So we set up this store and this distribution system. We can fairly easily sell some ads on top of that and not really change the experience for anyone involved except for the people who are buying the ads. Who buys the ads in Amazon? I've talked to a lot of sellers and brands as I've you know, over six years, and as I've done this podcast, basically everyone has to now. If I you mean, are selling through Amazon. If you're selling through Amazon. This is now an added cost. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say if you're not a big brand, but big brands are also buying that sponsored sort of banner at the top. This is even coming up, I think, during the during the antitrust hearings last week, right? This is yeah. sort of built in that, that if you're selling through Amazon, you're now paying Amazon. In the same way, by the way, that stores, if you want that end cap, if you want a certain space on a in a physical store, if you want to be at eye level instead of down by the feet, you pay to be placed there. This is true. This is true. So yes, it you know, some people would call it an additional tax. Slotting fee. 
swatting fee would be the uh-huh. traditional retail term. Yeah. So, I mean, basically everyone is buying these. Um, and it seems to me like the only ceiling on this, um, barring like regulatory uh, issues going on, is the actual growth of their retail business, right? They need to keep r- growing that to have more and more uh-huh. advertising slots. So if this is sort of built into sort of if you're selling on Amazon, you're buying ads from Amazon, um, that's money that maybe you're not going to spend on Google or Facebook. Maybe you still are going to spend it. Is that business going to grow outside of Amazon.com? If Will I be seeing people buying Amazon ads on third-party websites that I just encounter in the same way I find a Google or Facebook ad? Um, that's a very good question and one I have not dug a ton into. Um, I, it's that, the best way to answer a question you don't know is by saying that's a very good question. Yeah. it's People either say that when it's a very good question yeah. or it's an awful question. Right. So and they're condescending to you? Yeah, so um, I'm not going to tell you which one that was. All right, good deal. Uh, last question, because um, I know you, you have talked about this in your oral history, and I'm presuming in your podcast as well. Uh, Amazon's interest in TV and movies, we know they have been spending billions of dollars a year for many years. They've also reset the business. They've talked publicly about the fact that they want to go out and get bigger shows, this Lord of the Rings show. Still don't understand if they think this is a standalone business delivering media or if this is still going to be something that event just makes primes stickier. So how many billions of dollars are spending on this stuff, um, even when they're selling HBO and Showtime, which is a good business for them. It, all they really care about is do you subscribe to Prime because of that and or re-up? Or do you think that's going to be a standalone business for them? I think 90% of it is um, what it does for Prime yeah. and what it does for their core business. I think maybe 5% of it is Bezos likes to show up in a tux um, at these events and get call-outs from stage. Um, and he's just, he just cameos in Star Trek. and I mean— He's into it. He's into it. Yeah. And then I think, you know— Whatever the remaining percentage is, five percent is. Um, they're gonna, they're gonna, there are gonna be people there that are continue to look at this. If we can do something differentiated in this space, we're gonna keep investing, and maybe it will be its standalone thing that makes a ton of sense on its own. It's hard for me to see what that is right now. So I think the short answer is it's mainly in service. There's such an interesting one to handicap because they have such resources and ambition. Um, and so if you're sort of making the stack of who's going to be winning in the streaming wars, right? We know Netflix is going to be in the mix and Disney probably. Um, and smart people all think Amazon will be there. But if we don't know what they intend to do, it's sort of hard to figure out I'm where still, they end conf- up. You know, as a consumer, I'm still, um, maybe I'm just a bit slow when it comes to um, streaming, but I'm still confused when I look at their library, like what what I still have to pay for yeah. and rent, what is that? Am I am I missing no, something? It's very random. Okay, um, the mix they show you is random. I've brought this up on this podcast before. They send out letters in the mail that tell you to watch some of their shows, um, and there's all kinds of great nuggets in there. The best show you've never seen is called Catastrophe. Mm, I've uh, not seen it. It's so good. It's so so good. Um, and you can get it from Amazon Prime. There's a, tons of those little nuggets there. They just came out with these. They do these. Uh, NFL behind-the-scenes series. They're like hard knocks. Hmm. Um, a new one just came up on the Carolina Panthers, who I care zero about, and I will binge-watch that entire thing the next couple weeks. Hard knocks is on Amazon now. No, no, it's but it's hard knocks style. It's oh. the HBO film team, and so Got they it. take you. It's a season with a team you do not care about, um, and I'm still going to watch it. Well, that's they're, my doing, le- they're doing something right. That's my lecture. Plug your podcast. Land of the Giants. Uh, first episode drops July 23rd, which uh, will be a few days 
before you're listening to this. This is something we have not done at Vox Media before. It is, it, is, it is what we're calling a narrative podcast series. So we are trying to tell a story in each episode. This about, is not just two jackasses talking on a mic. It's some of that, although no jackasses because you're not um, a guest on the series. But Yeah, um, I noticed that, by the way. We have one more episode we're working on, so maybe we'll fit you in. And um, part of it is explaining the power, how Amazon got as powerful as it is today, talking to insiders, talking to people around the company. Part of it is exploring their impact on everyone else around them, sellers, warehouse workers, communities. I could keep going, but I think it's going to be great. You, I you got on planes for this? You went out into the hinterlands? and I took a trip into, um, I'm not going to say what state, but— yeah. um, Flyover country? Flyover country. I talked to some very high-level people at Amazon. I talked to people who were there at the beginning of uh, Amazon's life as a public company about how they built a very unique relationship with Wall Street, which is, I think, one of the main keys to their power. I'm not going to give away anything else. I'm really, really excited about this. I'm going to take full credit for it. I suggested it. So you if did. it's great, I, if it's great, you can thank me. You know, I walked into this room when I was like, the one thing I have to remember to do is give Peter credit for actually this whole thing being his idea. And then the more I talked to you, the more I was like, I really shouldn't give Peter credit. Yeah. But you did it for you. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Good for me. Um, you go subscribe separately, right? You have to go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe. Jason yeah, you will should thank search. You. You, thank sh- you. you should search "Land of the Giants" either on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. We know how to do that. We're going to do many seasons of "Land of the Giants" as well. This first season's called "The Rise of Amazon." It's going to be awesome. Go listen to it. Thank you for coming, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to you guys for listening. You know my ask: tell someone else about this show. Appreciate it. Thanks to our sponsors who let us bring you Recode Media for free. Golda Arthur produces Recode Media. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. Jelani was particularly interested in this show, right, Jelani? He's nodding. Joel Robbie edits this podcast. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.